0: And now to introduce today's speaker. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Ben Pedroja. He's a practicing hospitalist with Providence Portland Medical Center since 2018. Dr. Pedroja completed his undergraduate degree at Reed College, which first brought him to Portland, Oregon before he went to do medical school at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. We were fortunate to get Dr. Pedroja back here in Portland to do both his residency and then a chief resident year at Providence Portland. He stayed on and is currently a faculty member with their internal medicine residency program and he heads up the point of care ultrasound simulation and quality improvement curricula. Dr. Pedroja's areas of focus also include addiction medicine, early warning and rapid response systems, as well as improving the patient experience for those at Providence Portland Medical Center. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: OK, thank you for that kind introduction. And thank you all for being here today in person. And thank you for all of you turning at home. Uh, thanks to the committee, Dr. Leiter and Dr. Jesse Powell for inviting me to give this talk it's my great honor to stand before you today so the title of my talk is updates in hospital medicine 2022 the year in review so let's go ahead and get started I do have some objectives so mostly I want to review interpret and incorporate recent literature that's relevant to the the topic of hospital medicines now I'm going to emphasize those trials and studies that I feel to be practice changing or practice affirming things that are informing um, or affirming things that we are already doing or should be doing um, and try to really get you some information, some updates in your medical knowledge that you can incorporate into your practice starting today. And that really is my goal um, is to have you incorporate some new learnings into your practice. I want to mention this is not a COVID talk, right? We could fill an entire hour on COVID and nothing but COVID, but today we're going to focus on maybe some other things that are happening out there in the literature. This is also not a statistics lesson, right? This is meant to be a high-level review of recent literature, not a journal club. This is not a time to dive into the methods section for some critical appraisal. I feel my role here today is to really get some top-line news for you guys, something that you can incorporate into your practice starting today. So start with the case. We have a 51-year-old with hypertension, gout, alcohol use disorder, presenting with one day of epigastric pain and nausea, vomiting. Sounds like he's been on an alcohol binge over the last week or so, and these symptoms have been getting worse and worse over that interval. On exam, you notice his vital signs. He's got a little bit of a tachycardia here, uh, stable blood pressure and oxygenating at 94% on room air. He does have some mild epigastric tenderness, but his exam is otherwise uh, relatively benign workups notable for a markedly elevated live pace at 1100 blood alcohol level is 315 and a CT abdomen and pelvis does show some peripancreatic stranding without any local uh, complications or any other acute findings in the abdomen. So, question for you guys. And I have some questions here peppered throughout the talk. I do encourage you guys to Make a choice, as the best you can. I, I don't have an ability to get you involved here, but I do encourage you to choose an answer to try to solidify some of our learnings today. All right, so which of the following is the most appropriate initial step in management? Is it bolus one liter of LR and then continue 250 mils an hour thereafter? Do we continue just the maintenance fluids at 250 mils an hour and avoid a bolus? Is it C, do we reduce our fluid rate to 100 mils an hour and PRN bolus, first signs of hypotension. Or do we hold further further fluids? Or maybe you want to give Lasix, right? Because a dry pancreas is a happy pancreas. Did you guys think about that for a minute? So here we have a great practice-changing study published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, <clears throat> so the background here, again, this was, um, you know, a kind of clear current practice out there is to give early aggressive fluid resuscitation in, in, in acute pancreatitis. Certainly as long as I've been practicing, probably a much longer than that, you've just been pounding these patients when they come in with fluids to try to prevent those severe complications that we all fear with pancreatitis. But it turns out these are really based on limited evidence, um, most at anecdotal observational level or at the level of extra opinion. And so the question for this study was, does aggressive versus more moderate fluid resuscitation prevent progression of disease? This was a multi-center, open-label, randomized, controlled trial that was comparing a more aggressive versus a more moderate fluid resuscitation strategy. And these patients were assessed frequently. Basically, every 12 hours or so, they had a structured assessment that took place up to that 72-hour mark. The population that they assessed was 250, 249 inpatients who had mild to moderate pancreatitis. These are folks who did not have organ failure. It did not have local complications um, they didn't have other exacerbations of underlying conditions that would have put you into a more acute or more severe form of pancreatitis So again there were some important exclusions here that these are mild or moderate acute pancreatitis so the interventions here it's a little tough to parse exactly what their fluids would translate into like an order in epic because these are all weight based but to a reasonable approximation, the aggressive arm had an initial bolus, a liter and a half to two liters, and then about 200 mils an hour after that, a little higher actually. And the moderate arm did not have an initial bolus unless there were signs of hypotension, and then had 100 mils an hour thereafter. And like I was saying before, they had these structured follow ups 12, 24, 48, 72 hours where they proceeded through an algorithm where if they're taking orals, they would reduce the fluids. The details aren't super important. As you look through them, it reads more or less like usual care for acute pancreatitis. But understanding that there were these kind of updated assessments taking place, and the fluids were adjusted over that study period. And the outcomes they were following really was progression to severe disease over that interval, over that 72-hour interval. And again, that was the usual definition of a new organ failure Uh, or local complications. They also followed some safety outcomes, which was the hospital length of stay and any signs of fluid overload. So let's look at some data slides here. So in terms of progression to severe disease, there was really no difference. Those who had the aggressive fluid resuscitation had about a 22% chance of progression, whereas those with the moderate resuscitation actually had a slightly lower at 17%. Now these were non-significantly different um, and so there was really no improvement in the, in the primary outcomes. The real story with this trial is here. Over triple the rate of pulmonary edema and signs of fluid overload was seen in the aggressive arm compared to the moderate arm. And this actually prompted the study to be stopped early at that first interim analysis because there was a clear signal for harm without any clear benefit. And I would also notice that there was a non-significant trend toward more organ failure more local complications, and a longer length of stay in the aggressive arm. And this length of stay at six versus five days was really just a whisper from significance. And so I think there's a pretty clear evidence here that aggressive flu resuscitations is not helping and is probably causing harm. So I got some hot takes here. Firstly, less is more with fluids in acute pancreatitis. I think we're seeing that more globally in the literature, sepsis, critically ill patients, Pretty well across the board that we're probably getting more fluids than we should be and we can now add acute pancreatitis to that list would be my judgment we found that acute excuse me aggressive fluids did not lead to lower rates of progressive disease but did lead to much higher rates of, of pulmonary edema and fluid overload and had also trends in the wrong direction kind of more broadly so there were some limitations with this study it's small right it's open label the doctors knew what kind of fluids their patients were getting. And so maybe there would be some bias towards overcalling pulmonary edema, for example. But it wouldn't explain the other findings that were seen, and there was really no clear benefit whatsoever. And so I think it, despite this, um, and, and despite the fact that it was stopped early and underpowered because they didn't recruit the number of patients they intended, I think there's really useful information here. The last thing to just mention is they did include some of our common underlying diseases, heart failure, CKD, that may preclude our patients to fluid overload. So you kind of keep those things in mind. But again, I I feel this is a a solid practice-changing study coming out last year. So returning to our question here as to which of the following fluid strategies would be the best initial management, based on this evidence, I think it's pretty clear that coming down to 100 mils an hour on the fluid rate, and then monitoring closely for signs of hypotension would be the most appropriate management strategy. Okay, back to case number one. So, after reviewing the recent literature, you decide to pull back with your fluid rate and admit this patient under observation. As you're working through his order set there, you're recalling recent learnings, perhaps from prior updates in hospital medicine talk, that we are really avoiding chemical thromboprophylaxis for our lower risk patients. And this patient, relatively um, mild disease, you feel like you want to just add the SCDs. But a short time later, while this patient's still boarding in the ED, you get a page from the charge nurse that the CWAS scores are starting to climb. He's really calling out repeatedly, just not tolerating the SCDs. And they're wondering whether you'd like to order chemo, chemo- prophylaxis instead. So, which of the following is the most appropriate response? Is it letter A? Do you order unfractionated heparin, 5,000 units BID? Do you order low molecular weight heparin, 40 milligrams a day? Do you order low-dose DOAC? Or do you order a lorazepam infusion and keep those SCDs in place? Okay. So we have some work in this area, too. We had a large systematic review and network meta-analysis that was put out in the British Medical Journal last year. The background here is that we have guidelines out that generally recommend low molecular weight heparin, but there are some that are recommending heparin, um, unfractionated heparin, and there's really not a lot of guidance in terms of doses, strategies, or or other sort of details. And so they really wanted to do uh, a detailed analysis of this, trying to understand in acutely ill patients, which form of DBT prophylaxis best balances the harms and benefits. The design I mentioned, this is a systematic review and network meta-analysis. They did identify 44 randomized controlled trials that included 90,000 plus patients. And these were all manner of patients, ICU wards. They had MIs, strokes, other medical patients. There was a pretty broad mix of patients that were included. And the follow-up was typically about 90 days. So on the left there, I have... Some of the comparators; um, these are the different agents that they were including in their trial. There were actually a couple more that were here in this study that I didn't include today because they're not used in this region. But um, I did not feel like this was some uh, useful information for us. And the outcomes that they were following was primarily uh, all-cause mortality, the development of a symptomatic DDT or PE, and then major bleeding, which would they define as intracranial or GI. All right. So what do they? What do they find? So. Now, this is a busy slide and i'll try to walk us through it if i can so this is sort of a modified forest plot right but instead of having trials over here on the left these are actually the different agents on the left with kind of summary estimates here plotted on their forest plot right so it's kind of like a summary of summaries um, and it's laid out in a similar way where you have that vertical line of equivalence where to the right of that line favors placebo to the left of that line favors the intervention And so as you can see in the purple diamonds, there was really no big impact on all-cause mortality. Pretty well um, a negative result there, which was expected. This has been well known in the literature. In terms of recurrent DVT or PE, those are the green or the blue-green diamonds there. You can see there's a pretty consistent benefit there. They had about a 0.6 hazard ratio, um, which again was consistent across most of the different agents. It's a little hard to parse, but um, nonetheless, there it is. And that the real story here is about major bleeding. Those red diamonds, where you can see that compared to low molecular weight heparin up here, the unfractionated heparin and the doax had a much higher rate of major bleeding, double that rate. And I should have mentioned at the outside, on the, on the left here were those studies where placebo was the control, and on the right panel here was those studies where no intervention was the control. And I really want to just point out one thing, which is that there was appeared to be some form of systematic bias here, where in those studies where there was no interventionist control, they seemed to have worse impact on major bleeding and better impact on recurrent DVT. Not at all clear why that is. The authors didn't have a great explanation for why this systematic bias was seen, but clearly not a biologic effect. Some other impact is causing this discrepancy. So again, some takeaways here from this study firstly low molecular weight appears to confer the best balance of harms and benefits the unfractionated heparin and the doax they had more than double the rates of major bleeding with an odds ratio at 2.3 and 2.6 respectively and all of them reduced dbtpe to about the same extent about 0.6 and there was no um, there was no impact on overall mortality so, some limitations for this style. This was a heterogeneous sample. There was low to low moderate quality evidence, um, which in my mind is still good enough to inform our practice. The other thing to mention is that there was no stratification based on underlying risk. They lumped all commerce together, you know, ICU, wards, septic patients, um, and everything in between. The only real exclusions of note were elective surgeries, and if you had any form of mechanical thromoprophylaxis. Um, but nonetheless, I still think it's helpful. And then there's this systematic bias that remains unexplained is is still a bit puzzling for me. Okay, so returning to our question stem, as to which of the following DVT prophylaxis would be the most appropriate? I think based on this study and accumulated evidence kind of more broadly, low molecular weight is coming out ahead at 40 milligrams a day. Okay, case number two. We have an 86 year old African-American woman with dementia, prior stroke, hypertension, who's presenting from memory care with three days of nausea, poor PO intake, and generalized weakness. You learn later that there's been a COVID outbreak at her facility, and they was brought in for this assessment uh, in general. So on exam, a little bit febrile, tachycardic at 90, respiratory rate up at 22, stable blood pressure and saturating at 93% on room air. On exam, rather frail appearing, but clear lungs and a benign abdominal exam. Workup is notable for a mild leukocytosis. Cretin is a bit up to 1.6, a baseline around 0.8. That rapid COVID is indeed positive, but reassuringly the test X-ray is clear. uh, Procalcitonin and lactate are both negative. So continuing this case, given these multiple comorbidities, the signs of dehydration and renal injury, um, there's concern that we have progression of underlying COVID and so she's admitted for observation, IV fluids, she gets some remdesivir and supportive care. Actually, in the course of my learnings this uh, this week, I've, I've come to learn what supportive care means, which I think is mostly um, IV fluids and lighthearted banter, which I think is kind of mainstay of most of our treatments here in the hospital. Um, anyways, moving right along. The next day, patient's still boarding in the ED, as most of our patients are, you get a page. She developed a new cough and is complaining of dyspnea. Pulse Ox, though, is still reading 93% and you have a very reliable waveform. You repeat her chest X-ray, still clear. You repeat her procalcitonin, still negative. So the question for us is, for this 86-year-old African-American woman with a new complaint of dyspnea and cough, which of the following is the best initial step in management? Is it A, order ceftriaxone or Zithromycin for suspected pneumonia? Is it B, order a pixaban for suspected PE? Do you stop the fluids and order Lasix for suspected idiopathic pulmonary edema? D, do you order an ABG to look for occult hypoxemia as to whether or not maybe steroids would be an indication here? Or is it E? Go ahead and order the steroids because we know they help everything, right? Okay, so racial disparities in pulse oximetry. We've known about this for decades. And just this year, we had three major studies in this area. The top two I point out here were done in ICU patients. Uh, I'll touch on one of these a little bit, but this study down here was done on general medicine patients of the type hospitalists may care for. And so I'm hoping to, d- to dive into this study a little more deeply. Backing up for a second, though, pulse oximetry, I'm sure you guys are all aware, has been used for a long time as a non-invasive way to measure the saturation of oxyhemoglobin. And the way it does this is that it passes two different wavelengths through the finger, infrared and red, and you have a receiver on the other side that kind of measures the absorption of those wavelengths. And it turns out that deoxyhemoglobin uh, reabsorbs a greater amount of red light and oxyhemoglobin absorbs a greater amount of infrared light. And by measuring the relative absorption of these two wavelengths, they're able to plot that against a standard curve and get an estimate of the oxygen saturation, or excuse me, the oxyhemoglobin saturation in the blood. Now, understanding anything that impacts the absorption of this light is also going to have an impact on that calculation, which would include skin pigmentation, nail polish, you know, spray on tanner. I don't know anything that kind of obstructs that light flow is going to impact that reading. And so the background is that we've really known this to be the case since the 1990s for a good long time. And we now have some evidence this has real impact. Right. We had a study here just this year in ICU patients, that black patients had more likelihood of having occult hypoxemia. And the, the delay in the recognition of this hypoxemia was actually associated with worse outcomes, and that included an increase in mortality. So the question for this study was, are similar discrepancies seen in general medicine patients who are not acutely ill? So what do they do here? So this was a multi-center retrospective cohort study there was comparing paired samples, those taken from blood gas-derived oxygen saturation and those from a pulse oximeter taken from the same patient less than 10 minutes apart. And they actually had 30,000 of these paired samples from med surge patients admitted to VA hospitals nationwide. And the main outcome they were looking for was the frequency of occult hypoxemia, which was defined as a blood gas-derived SaO2 of less than 88%, despite a normal SpO2 above 92% obtained by a pulse oximeter. So what do they find? Here's their data slide. So what's plotted here is the percent or the frequency of a cold hypoxemia on the y-axis over a range of pulse oximeter readings from about 92 to 100%. The purple line there is for black patients. The the yellow line is in white patients. And the the ratio in their study was about 22% black versus 70 plus or so. For white patients and as you can see there's a significantly higher rate of occult hypoxemia in black patients and that that tends to occur most frequently at these low ranges of pulse oximetry readings as you may expect and as after you've kind of controlled for all forms of confounders they actually had a point estimate at 19.6 versus 15.6 about a four percent difference so takes from this study pulse oximetry is less reliable in black patients I think we've known that, but we now have pretty clear evidence that this is impacting our care significantly. And so we should really maintain a low threshold to order an ABG if there's ever concern for unrecognized hypoxemia. Because as our case here demonstrates, that could well change management. Now, the limitations on this study, this was not a random sample. We don't know why providers chose to order an ABG, and there may well be a good one that we don't understand well. And of course this was self-identified race as the group's specification which you know there's a broad range of skin pigmentation in there and so we don't have clear reliable evidence as to what the actual obstruction may have been in those pulse oximeter readings and then importantly these were not correlated with patient outcomes right we had that earlier study from this from last year where they did show reduced outcomes or worse outcomes in icu patients but this was not in this study so all this together though i still feel like this is compelling evidence that we are seeing a real impact on our care based on the discrepancies in pulse oximeter readings. So returning to our question, STEM, which of the following is the next best step in management based on this trial and others? I think pretty clearly, order that ABG, right? Because if you have a cold hypoxemia seen here, you may well treat this patient differently. And there would certainly be a clinical concern as such, given the new complaints of dyspnea and cough with underlying COVID. Also of note, We may have a solution coming down the pike. We actually have FDA approval for a device that's being developed that uses a white light emitter and it has some kind of spectral sensor that it continuously modifies the signal intensity and can actually account for different levels of absorption. And so we may actually have a technological fix for this problem in coming years. So stay tuned uh, for potential new pulse oximeters coming. Okay, case number three. We have a 76-year-old man with metastatic lung cancer, prior smoker, peripheral artery disease, type 2 diabetes, got a chronic right lower extremity wound, who's admitted from his sniff with right lower extremity cellulitis. This is kind of recurrence happened multiple times now, multiple debridements, and so here we are again. This time, he's found to be bacteremic with MSSA. ID is consulted, and they're recommending two weeks of antibiotics, two weeks of IV antibiotics. Repeat cultures are clear, and there's no signs of endovascular infection. So on his third hospital day, while still boarding in the ED, you're paged by nursing that he's lost IV access again. IV therapy was called, they just can't replace it, and they're requesting a PIC line. So question for us, which of the following is the most appropriate response? Is it A, order a PIC as requested? Is it B, order a midline catheter? C, transition to PO cefalexin and hope ID's okay with it? Or do we transfer to the ICU and request a central line access. And here's Wayne Strauss, if you don't know him, expressing his supreme displeasure with that plan. OK, so we have here a large cohort that's trying to get to the answer here. So this group in Michigan has done a lot of work in this area, really trying to delineate when a PIC is appropriate versus a midline catheter. And we have some helpful updates to this area uh, that I want to share with you today. So Backing up for a second, I'm sure most of you guys know these things. Uh, a PIC is a peripherally inserted central catheter where that catheter tip terminates right in that right atrium, whereas a midline catheter also peripherally inserted but terminates in the axillary vein distal to the shoulder. So the question that they had was are pigs associated with an increased risk of complications compared to a midline catheter? And again, this was a retrospective cohort study using data from the Michigan Hospital Medicine Safety Consortium. This is a large database that's maintained by a commercial insurance company, and it includes 48 hospitals throughout the state of Michigan. The population they studied was more than 10,000 who were admitted to medicine wards or ICUs and received PICS or a midline catheter, either for difficult vascular access or because of the need for IV antibiotics, but less than 30 days. And the outcomes they were following was a composite outcome of basically any of the common complications we see. So either a catheter associated DBT a catheter-associated bloodstream infection or occlusion within that 30-day window so what do they find here's their data table a lot of numbers here i apologize for that but i want to just draw your attention to their primary outcome which again was that composite outcome of all the complications which found that in pick lines almost 10 percent of their patients developed one of these complications whereas with a midline catheter less than four percent and importantly most of this difference was due to line infections where you had more than fourfold higher rates of line infections and over two-fold higher rates of catheter occlusions. So the, to me, this is pretty impressive evidence that we're seeing more than double the rates of complications for a typical case where you may reach for a PICC line. So some hot takes here. Midline catheters are probably preferred over PICs for really any short-term indication for IV antibiotics, or excuse me, for IV access, whether that's difficult access or the need for IVs. And picks appear to be overutilized. And the reason I say this is in that data set, the mean duration of PIC dwell time was 14 days. And I should have mentioned, they did a lot of work accounting for these, these differences, right? Dwell time, catheter lumen, number of lumens, all these sorts of things. Um, but 50% of the patients in their study had a PIC line for less than 14 days, which would put at 50% the number of patients who inappropriately had a PIC based on these data. And that agrees anecdotally with what I see in, in my practice, that we really are probably overutilizing utilizing PICs and should be leaning on midline catheters much more frequently. So a couple of limitations, this was not a random sample. We don't know why providers chose a PIC over a midline catheter, they may well have been a reason. And also this was retrospective. And we would love to see a prospective trial randomizing patients to a PIC or a midline catheter, but it's really hard to see that being done. Um, nonetheless, I feel that this is compelling enough evidence that we really should be limiting our picks in favor of a midline catheter for short-term indications of vascular access. So returning to our our STEM here, midline catheter clearly winning out here. Okay, case number four. We have a 68-year-old man with hypertension, type two diabetes, tobacco use, presenting with dyspnea and pleuritic chest pain three days after returning on a 13-hour flight from New Zealand. On exam, he's got a mild tachycardia, stable blood pressure, and oxygenating at 94% on room air. He does have clear lungs. He does appear dyspneic, but there's no calf swelling, and the rest of the exam is benign. Workup does an elevated D-dimer. The BNP, troponin, and EKG are all unremarkable, and we have that CT pulmonary angiogram that shows multiple bilateral subsegmental pulmonary embolism. So, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? Is it A, start anticoagulation for a provoked PE? Is it B, avoid anticoagulation since these are subsegmental PEs? You obtain venous dopplers and only proceed with anticoagulation if you find the DVT. Or is it D, contact the thoracic radiologist and ask for a second read on the scan? We actually found that with these subsegmental PEs, a second read often eliminates that finding. So gosh, maybe that's an answer choice. Or is it E, contact Dr. Strauss and ask what he wants to do? All right. So here we have a prospective cohort that's trying to get at this question. The background here is that the incidence of PEs is rising significantly in this country, yet the case fatality rate is decreasing. And the reason that we think this is happening is that as the as the availability of CT pulmonary angiogram has risen across the country and, and EDs everywhere, We're identifying more and more PEs, many of which are probably low risk and may have limited clinical relevance whatsoever. And in fact, we have guidelines just from a couple years ago that for subsegmental PEs, we should be doing surveillance over anticoagulation, again, for subsegmental PEs in low risk, risk patients. And so the question in this study was. What is the rate of recurrent DVT-PE in patients with subsegmental PE that are managed without anticoagulation? The design here, this was a prospective cohort study. And basically, you got into this study if you had a subsegmental PE, and then you had a, a Doppler to rule out DVT on day one and then again at day seven and were monitored for 90 days for the for signs of recurrent DVT or PE. Now, these patients weren't screened. It's not as though they went in at their 90-day checkup and had a lower extremity Doppler and another CTPA. They were only looking for symptomatic DVT-PE over the course of their study period. And the population they studied was 292 low-risk patients who had these isolated sub PEs and were managed without anticoagulation, basically as the guidelines would have us do. And the outcomes, again, was the rate of recurrent DBT at 90 days. They had some ins- important subgroups. They wanted to understand if there were any differences between multiple and single subsegmental PEs. And they also stratified by age, plus or, or, or minus 65 years. So here's their data slide. So here we're looking at the percentage of recurrent PE on the on the y-axis plotted over time, three months of their study period. As you can see that the overall estimate was about 3.1% for the recurrence of DBTPE, which was significantly higher than was expected. Just for a little bit of context here, for patients who had a more proximal DBTPE and were treated with anticoagulation, they also had a rate of recurrence about 3%. And so this was a bit of a surprise to the authors that we're seeing this kind of recurrence rate in patients with these subsegmental PEs. But in my mind, the real story with this paper is in the subgroups, because what we're seeing here is that for patients who had multiple PEs and for those who were more than 65 years old, the recurrence rates were much higher, above 5% in those groups, compared to about 2% for younger patients with single PEs. So hot takes here. Substantical PEs have a higher than expected recurrence rate. I think that's pretty clear from this study. I don't think anyone would have expected a 3% recurrence rate as these guidelines were put out in 2021. Again, for younger patients, that 2% recurrence rate with single PEs is probably tolerable, right? You can have a conversation, shared decision-making about a 2% recurrence rate balanced against the bleeding risk of anticoagulation. It would be highly reasonable to treat those patients with surveillance alone, as the guidelines would recommend. But for older patients with multiple PEs, I feel that those would warrant anticoagulation, given that 5% recurrence rate. And again, that's a change from guidelines, and it would be a, an update to practice this year. So the limits, this was a low-risk patient population. I don't know about you guys, but these low-risk patients are kind of rare in our practice, right? And there were lots of exclusions. And the one that I would point out in particular was that you couldn't be admitted to a hospital when this diagnosis was made and get into the study. So if you're admitted for something else and had a a CT pulmonary angiogram inpatient that showed a PE subsegmental, you would not be included in this trial. So understanding this is a somewhat rarefied group of low risk patients with isolated subsegmental PEs. And also just noting, these were not done in US medical centers, right? And just as I was mentioning, we perform a lot more CTPAs in other countries, like a lot more. And so there's entirely reasonable to expect that the patients in this study probably had a higher pretest probability than the patients that we manage here with a positive CT pulmonary angiogram. So again, that might bias us again towards more surveillance and less treatment. But to me, with a 5% plus recurrence rate with older patients, multiple subsegmental PEs, I think the choice is clear that you would probably want to recommend anticoagulation in that population. Happily, we have a randomized control trial underway. We have the SAFE-SSPE study that is currently recruiting that is getting at exactly this question. They are recruiting low risk patients with subsegmental PEs and randomizing them to anticoagulation or surveillance. And so maybe in a future Hospital Medicine Updates talk, we can have some real definitive information to answer this question. So stay tuned, and this is expected in 2024. All right, so I think we've kind of hit this one home. Clearly, in my opinion, anticoagulation would be warranted for a new provoked PE in this patient. Again, remember, this was a 68-year-old with isolated subsegmental PEs. Okay, back to case four. So you've now reviewed this literature with your patient and you agree that anticoagulation seems reasonable and you would decide to admit for observation given his ongoing symptoms. The next day, still in the ED, you receive a page that the patient got a MyChart message. His doctors are negative and he wonders whether he needs anticoagulation after all. He also wants to talk about oral options for anticoagulation and he wants a PAN scan because he thinks he has cancer, right? I'm sure you guys have had this kind of page before. All right, so which of the following is the most appropriate response? Is it A, recommend Apixaban since its rate of occurrence is estimated at 5% in that recent study I just showed you? Is this B, you recommend Rivaroxaban since the rate of occurrence is about 5%? Do you recommend Warfarin with the Anoxaparin bridge because anticoagulation clinics are a great way to meet new people? Or do you order a CT test to have them in pelvis, PET CT, thighs, the skull base, MRI brain, anticoagulation, workup, and maybe consult to oncology, right? Okay, so here we have another retrospective cohort that was published in Annals last year. Now the background here, I'm sure you guys know this, is that DOACs are now recommended first line for DVT. Um, we have some big trials that came out, the Amplified trial, this is gosh, 10 years old by now, um, where they showed non-inferiority of uh, Pixaban to Warfarin with a Lovenox bridge in the treatment of acute DVT. And there was actually a slight decrease in the rates of major bleeding in that trial. We also had the Einstein trial, which showed similar findings for rivaroxaban, although the bleeding rates were actually the same in that study. But importantly, we don't have any head-to-head comparisons as to which DOAC is the best to treat patients with acute DVT. And so that was really the idea here, is they wanted to try to compare the efficacy and safety of apixaban versus rivaroxaban. And what they did is they took a retrospective review using a commercial insurance database, and they identified 37,000 patients who had a new DVT or PE and were initiated on rivaroxaban or apixaban. And then they followed these patients for a median of three months for any signs of recurrent DVT. And of course, they were following major bleeding as well, try to get a sense of the safety. So here's their data slide. So on the top, we're looking at recurrent DVT. On the bottom, we're looking at major bleeding. The dotted line is a apixaban. The solid line is rivaroxaban. As you can see, there's a greater rate of recurrent DVT for rivaroxaban as depicted here. And they had a hazard ratio of about 0.77. Similarly, for major bleeding, rivaroxaban um, appears to have more major bleeding. And so clearly we're seeing that a apixaban appears to be outperforming rivaroxaban based on this retrospective review. Now, one thing I want to mention is that the absolute risk difference was small. They estimated these at about 1% or 1.5%, um, as to the absolute risk difference. But nonetheless, this was statistically significant and appeared to be durable throughout their study. The lines separate early and remain so throughout their study period. So some hot takes here. apixaban may be preferred to rivaroxaban, especially in patients with a high risk of bleeding. Now, these effects were small, right? And it's still a very reasonable option to choose rivaroxaban for especially patients who prefer a daily dose. And that has been my practice and will continue to be so, which I tend to recommend apixaban for any patient with a higher risk of bleeding, certainly for CKD and even dialysis patients. But rivaroxaban is a reasonable option for those patients who might prefer daily dosing. Now, the limits here, this is retrospective and short follow-up. Um, 90 days is a reasonable, useful number for us, but i would be curious to know where these things stand over a longer study period, right? The Einstein trial, the Amplify style, they've followed these patients for much longer. And there's also still potential for, for unmeasured confounding. We don't know why the provider chose Apixaban over a Rivaroxaban in these studies, and there may well be a reason that we just aren't, aren't privy to. But nonetheless, I feel that this is reasonably solid evidence that apixaban may be preferred for some of our patients with acute dvt now also happily we have a another randomized controlled trial the cobras trial is also currently recruiting and they're really going to prospectively look at this question of rivaroxaban versus apixaban in acute dvt so again 2024 looking forward to some definitive data in this area so returning to our question as to what is the most appropriate management for this patient with a new acute DBT, I think it's reasonable to choose a Pixaban for this patient, given his elevated risk and the relative improved safety profile of the Pixaban as compared to Riberoxaban. Okay. One more case. Here we have a 73 year old man with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, tobacco smoker who's presenting with three weeks of progressive dyspnea and leg edema. On exam, Pretty unremarkable, saturating 90% on room air, just kind of ba- barely hanging on there. You do not do notice some crackles at the lung bases, some leg edema, and that JVP is up to 12 centimeters. Workup reveals an elevated BNP. Troponin and EKG are unremarkable. Chest x-ray does show some interstitial markings with signs of pulmonary edema. And that echocardiogram shows an EF of 65% with grade two diastolic dysfunction. There's no valvular disease or any other abnormalities that were detected there. So. Based on this patient, who sure looks like he's got de novo, new onset heart failure, which of the following is the appropriate next step in management? Do you A, diarrhea to uvolemia, and then add the SGLT2 inhibitor prior to discharge? Is it B, diarese to uvolemia, and arrange follow-up with cardiology and let them worry about the SGLT2 inhibitor? Is it C, add the SGLT2 inhibitor now? Or is it D, tell the patient to sell his boat so he can eventually afford his cardiac meds? Right? OK, so back you up for a second. SGLT2 inhibitors, a lot of work in this area recently. These were initially developed as diabetes drugs. And just by way of review, these poison the sodium glucose transporter here in the proximal tubular tubule. And these trans- transporters are, are meant to draw out the glucose and reabsorb them black, back into the, into the bloodstream. And so when you poison these channels, the net effect is increased glycosuria, improved glycemic control for your patients. But as these studies were progressing, they noticed these cardiovascular out- outcomes that were improving, and so we've kind of turned our attention to these drugs as heart failure medicines. And just as a, a, a sort of note here, here's the the three that you're likely to come across here: dapagliflozin, um, as Farxiga; canagliflozin, Invokana. In this is the one that's on formulary in our pharmacy, and then we have empagliflozin, which is Jardiance. Okay, background here. Now we could fill an entire hour on SGLT2 inhibitors, right? This is a very active area, and so I just want to give you kind of a high-level review of where things stand with this literature. So back in 2019, we had this landmark DAPA-HF trial where they randomized to dapagliflozin to placebo in patients with systolic heart failure and they showed impressive reductions in a composite outcome of heart failure admissions or cardiovascular death. I mean, we're talking 25%, 30% reductions, really impressive numbers. And this is regardless of their heart failure status. So uh, in 2020, we had the emperor reduced trial, which showed similar findings for empaglifosin and also found some improvements in the progression of CKD. The emperor preserved came out in 2021. This showed that empaglifosin as compared to placebo showed improvement with diastolic heart failure. this is really the first major trial that showed any improvement with this patient population and got all of us really excited for these SGLT2 inhibitors. At least I was excited. A note, though, is that the benefit seemed to be somewhat attenuated for people who had truly normal EFs above 60%. And then this year we had the deliver trial, basically showed the similar findings for Tibiglifogan, where they randomized to placebo in a patient population who had a mix of reduced and preserved EF and they showed similar findings with impressive numbers above 20-25% reductions in these same composite outcomes. Now, I didn't dive into this trial today, even though it was published last year, largely because it doesn't add a huge amount to the literature base here. Basically, it's showing us that this is a class effect with SGTL2 inhibitors. But that the, again, the outcomes, the study design, much else was the same as what came before. But what's new this year is a couple things I want to touch on. We had an ambitious systematic review that was done and published in The Lancet that's trying to combine these trials and really put out some solid numbers for us. So the question they had was, what is the effect of SGLT2 inhibitors on the rates of heart failure, hospitalizations, and cardiovascular mortality across various subgroups? They were able to extract a lot of demographic and other information and try to really assess as to whether there was differences among them. And design was a systematic review and a network meta-analysis, and they found five RTCs that had more than 20,000 patients. And these were a mix of reduced and preserved EF with and without diabetes and had all manner of other subgroups that they were following. And the outcome was that composite of heart failure admissions or cardiovascular death, and they also tried to show any benefit or uh, improvement in in all-cause mortality. All right, so here's their forest plot. So just orienting you here again, we have a forest plot here where the line here is that equivalence. Over here are studies and they've grouped them by preserved EF on top and reduced EF here below. And you can see all these summary estimates are, are well to the left of that line that would favor intervention versus placebo. And they put the overall hazard ratio at 0.77. So, you know, 23% improvement here in their, in their composite outcome, We put the number needed to treat at 25. Um, So again, a really impressive improvement here in this composite outcome. Similar findings for all-cause mortality, although much less robust numbers. So here's our line of equivalence, little bit um, kind of closer to that line with an overall hazard ratio at 0.9 and a number needed to treat at 92. And the effect that was seen here was consistent across all groups, regardless of EF, regardless of diabetes status, age, region, baseline, cardiac package. I mean, they really drilled down onto all these various factors, and they were found to have a consistent benefit across the board with this medicine. So, hot takes. SGLT2s are now cemented as foundational therapy for all comers with heart failure. I think that's conclusively established now, and that's irrespective of diabetes status, LVEF or background therapies. And in fact, we had updated guidelines last year that has now had a class one recommendation for SGLT2s for everybody. And this effect, as I mentioned, was substantial, and in their words, statistically robust for heart failure hospitalizations, which I think is driving most of their numbers. But there was a small, if somewhat less robust, outcome with all-cause mortality. Okay. we're talking about chronic heart failure here. The follow-ups in these studies were two plus years. What about acute fail- heart failure? What about patients that we manage here in the hospital? right? So we actually had some work done in this area. We had a trial, the impulse trial, that was trying to get at this question. I want to review with you a little bit. So again, th- their question, does empagliflozin improve clinical outcomes when initiated in the hospital shortly after admission for patients admitted with acute decompensated CHF? Again, this was a multi-center randomized controlled trial that recruited 530 patients hospitalized with CHF. They had both preserved and reduced EF with and without diabetes, and they were re- old pretty soon after hospitalization. The median time was at three days. And the outcome they were following here was a similar composite of heart failure readmission or cardiovascular death. And they also included a structured survey of patient-reported symptom improvement over this interval and so here's their their data slide here it's a little hard to parse their statistics are a little difficult to understand but they basically did these paired assessments where based on a couple of these factors that will will list on the left in a minute they asked which of the two had a better outcome and they kind of had these wins right some of them were ties a little bit hard to understand but basically if you over the average 1.3 of the time you had a benefit from um and versus placebo. And here's what they're kind of following, which again, here's their overall estimate. They're looking for uh, overall mortality, HFE, which is a heart failure event, which is basically an admission, um, or their rep- the responses to their surveys. Um, so you can kind of think about this as a similar kind of force plot looking thing for a composite outcome, but the-, the statistics are a little bit uh, more opaque than that. But nonetheless, compelling in my mind that empagliflozin improved clinical outcomes when initiated early after admission and that this admission this improvement was seen early people were responding uh, in- improvements in their symptoms as soon as 15 days after randomization this was durable throughout their study period volume depletion did occur slightly more frequently in the empagliflozin group this was non-statistically significant but there was no increase in AKI and there was really no impact seen on diuresis despite all the fluid shifting and everything else happening early in a hospital stay so to me this is pretty compelling that we can safely add the sgt2 um, shortly after admission for patients admitted with heart failure limitations here this was a small study it was underpowered really to detect actual changes in cardiovascular death or heart failure readmissions and it had a short-term follow-up right the most of the studies were looking for much longer duration but for me 90 days you know is a compelling endpoint for patients admitted under our care with heart failure. So returning to our question, STEM, I think based on this evidence, going ahead and adding that SGLT2 inhibitor now would probably be the best approach to extract that immediate-term benefit and that longer-term benefit in terms of heart failure outcomes. But you probably want to tell your patient to sell their boat too, right? These medicines are expensive. And in fact, we saw a cost analysis that was done. This was published in JAMA, where they looked at data from the Emperor Preserve trial. Again, this was the trial in diastolic heart failure, randomizing impact into placebo that had an impressive outcome in the kind of positive heart failure readmissions or cardiovascular death. And they put the quality adjusted life year, $430,000, right? For one gained quality adjusted life year. Now there's some caveats here to mention. Firstly, they did not include that mortality benefit in this calculation. Because it wasn't statistically significant, but if you took that calculation to be significant, and that estimate was at nine percent, which again was consistent with that systematic review that was at eight percent, this number then falls to one seventy-five thousand a year. Still not to sneeze at, but a much better number than four hundred thirty-seven thousand. But their cost estimate for an SGLT two inhibitor in this analysis was three hundred twenty-seven dollars. And so any of you guys have tried to prescribe this drug, know the actual cost to our patient is easily twice that. So we are still pushing towards half a million a year for a single quality adjusted life gain for this drug. And the authors conclude that this medicine is probably low value for our patients at the current price. So with that bit of happy news, let's summarize. Okay, so for patients with acute pancreatitis, less is more with fluids we did not see a benefit of aggressive versus moderate flu resuscitation in terms of progression of severe disease. And based on that systematic review, low molecular weight heparin is probably the best for DVT prophylaxis. Understanding that pulse oximeters are unreliable in black patients, and we should really maintain a low threshold to get that ABG to look for a cold hypoxemia. We compared midlines and PICs and found that PICs are associated with a much higher rate of complications and we really should be reaching for that midline catheter for all patients with a less than 14-day indication for vascular access. We found that older patients with multiple subsegmental PEs had a much higher rate of recurrence above 5% than younger patients with single PEs, and that it's probably reasonable to recommend anticoagulation in those patients despite the recent guidelines that recommend surveillance. We also found that in a retrospective review, apixaban seemed to outperform rivaroxaban, both in terms of prevention of DBTPE and the rates of major bleeding. But stay tuned for that randomized control trial in 2024. And then, lastly, SGLT2 inhibitors are now firmly established as foundational therapy in all patients with heart failure. And that includes patients with decompensated heart failure. And so, hopefully, the cost will come down and we can get this medicine out into the hands of the people who need it. And with that, I'm happy to take your questions.
0: Great, many, many thanks, Dr. Pedroja for an outstanding presentation. I'll give um, folks a moment to formulate their questions in the room. Um, Couple online, I think one, uh, you covered in your conclusions highlighting, probably advocating for more midline use and patients being discharged with the indication for less than 14 days of antibiotics. Um, And then could you comment just slightly more on how low risk was defined in the subsegmental PE study?
1: Yeah, so yeah, that's a that's a good question. Just and for anyone listening at home that didn't hear that, the question is, what is this population of low-risk patients? So I don't have it uh, kind of on command here, but basically it's people who have isolated PEs. Um, you can't have an unprovoked PE, right? You can't have cancer. Um, you can't have a judgment of, of kind of, increased risk going forward or a non-modifiable risk, that is, right? So if you had like our patient in this case had a flight they just got off of, that is a provoked PE with a modifiable risk. And you wouldn't expect that person to have ongoing increased risk. The people who don't make into these studies are people who have provoked PEs, or excuse me, unprovoked PEs, have some unmodifiable risk factor like cancer or otherwise. Um, What else? I think those are the major ones to us. And so unfortunately, it is a somewhat rarefied group of patients. Um, but nonetheless when you do encounter one this this evidence would come into play
0: thanks so much for your talk i'm interested in how much you're seeing uptake of this among your colleagues so far like maybe all of your new points and also what system Things we can do because I know uptake typically lags. What five, ten years? Right. What can we do to push that forward? It seems like with the midline to pick line, I mean, our midline putter inners could be like, or our vascular people could say, "Well, don't you want a midline?" And right. that would help. I wonder if there's any other sort of system changes that could help us push this agenda.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um- you know, on that point particularly, I actually called the IV therapist on the phone as I was reading these these papers. I was like, Well, what are you guys doing these days? Um and they're like, Oh yeah, we see a lot of picks and we kind of wonder to ourselves whether midline catheter was better, but they didn't have a protocol where they were making those recommendations, right? They tend to just receive the orders and and kind of do it. So you're absolutely right. Could you have, you know, a more guideline directed protocol for midline versus pick? Because that group, that group from Michigan, they actually published, I think it's called the magic criterion where you can kind of type in your patient car- factors and they make a recommendation of pick versus midline. And so could you ha- could you enlist their support to kind of better follow or better adhere to those guidelines? Certainly, we do similar things for fuller catheterizations, for example. And so you can easily imagine um, that kind of intervention to reduce the incidence of these inappropriate picks. Um, and then kind of more broadly, what am I seeing in terms of uptake? You know, I would say it's mixed. Um actually I was on service last week with residents and I was already preparing this talk, and there were many instances where I was like, well, let me tell you about you know this or that. So I think there's room to see these things incorporated, um, especially like fluids and pancreatitis, I don't think is is widely known. Um, you know, some of them have better uptake, you know, at least certainly where I practice, our cardiology group is pretty aggressive with the SDLT2s, getting those on early, making sure they do a cost assessment. I mean, they're really pushing that pretty hard. And so I would say it's probably a mix on the list of things I brought here today. Some of them need a little work, some of them are, are being uptaken. Uh, I think a lot of it depends on the evidence base and who's driving those ships.
0: Great, thank you. I will perhaps echo on that um, work by our own resident quality improvement curriculum for uptake of SGLT2 inhibitors. Thank you, Dr. Pan here. Um, here I have a, an off-topic question that will take advantage of your expertise if you'd like to comment okay. um, on benefits of hospital use of tranexamic acid to decrease post-op bleeding and transfusion. Any comments?
1: Gosh, you know I don't think I'm equipped to comment on that one. Um, if, if someone has recent uh, learnings to share I'd be all ears but I don't think I have particular knowledge to share.
0: I would share your situation. I'm okay. grateful
1: I'm for not the alone the expertise
0: yeah. that you brought forward to us today. Thank you, Dr. Petroja. Yes. We are nearly the top of the hour. Any last burning question in the audience here live? Great, thank you. With that, um, really appreciate your excellent education.
1: Thank you all. Thanks for being here. <laughs>